Can you grab a Bible? Let's take a moment to pray together, shall we? Father, we want to come to you and say thank you. Thank you for the gift of another day. Thank you for life. Thank you for your grace and your kindness that welcomes us, that draws us to worship you and to know you and to gather here as your people. Lord, we want to give you this time and ask that you would speak to us, open our eyes and ears to see and to hear what you would have for us this morning. Help our hearts to be open to your word. And Lord, we come to you uh, from a lot of different places. Some of us have had great weeks. Some of us have had hard weeks. And so for those of us that are hurting or discouraged or exhausted, overwhelmed, grieving, Lord, we, we look to you and say, Lord, would you help us? Lord, would you lift our spirits? Lord, would you remind us who you are and your love for us? But God, for those of us that are coming in, uh, having a great week, encouraged and filled with joy, Lord, we look to you as well and say thank you for those good things, the good gifts that you've given to us, the things you've placed in our lives, Lord, in all of it, good and bad alike. We look to you and recognize our need for you, and we say thank you. Lord, we give you this time now in Jesus' name, amen. And all right, well now, go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to have the words on the screen if by chance you don't have a Bible with you. Not a problem. It's good to be back with you. I missed you. Last week I was sick, not feeling good at all, so a huge thank you to Pastor Lee for filling in and preaching. I was able to listen to the podcast a few days after Sunday while I was doing dishes, and he, he did a great job. It was fabulous. Always good to hear Pastor Lee preach, and so I hope that you were encouraged as well uh, from his words. And just a housekeeping note before we jump into the text today, um, one of our commitments here as a church, as church leaders, one of the things we're convicted about is the importance of shepherding in the life of the local church. We believe that pastors and church leaders are called to be shepherds of the flock, to care for the people of God. That's the imagery that Scripture gives us. And so we're not primarily uh, talking heads up front. Pastors are not uh, entrepreneurs or uh, businessmen or uh, performers. Pastors are shepherds. We see this laid out in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. And so one of the things that we've really wanted to do here since I got here and when Pastor Lee got here is to be committed to shepherding you. The, the people of God, to doing our best to care for you, to know you, to, to pray for you, to pray for your family, to try to stay somewhat in touch with you, to see how we can pray for you. But as we've grown, we've seen that the shepherding needs have grown as well. And with more people comes more um, people to shepherd. And so it's been more challenging for just myself and then just myself and Lee to, to handle all of that. And so what we're doing is we're bringing on uh, two other shepherds, we're not hiring any pastors or anything like that, but two faithful men who you may or may not know, uh, Dan Wolke and Steve Fretwell, who are just, uh, can't say enough good things about these two men and how they love the Lord and how they love this church and how they love people well. And so as 
Lee and I were praying and thinking through who else to bring on to the shepherding team. Uh, Dan and Steve, uh, very quickly, uh, were easy, easy answers. And they uh, have been excited and willing to step into this role of shepherd. They both are serving on the board of directors already. And so this is kind of an additional responsibility that we're asking of them to care for the people of the church. And so what that means for you, the reason I'm telling you this, is if you call this your church home and you're here regularly, you're on our kind of our roster, then you are going to be, if you've not already been, assigned to a shepherd, which means that either myself, Pastor Lee, Steve, or Dan will be your shepherd, which means that they will be caring for you, praying for you. If you're really gone for a couple weeks in a row, probably checking in, making sure things are okay, seeing how they can pray for you and your family. Um, And we hope to establish a regular uh, pattern of communication. And so at least once a month, you should be hearing from your shepherd, either a phone call or just touching base in person just to see how they can pray for you. So again, wanted to give you a heads up. If, If Dan calls you out of the blue, now you know why. Uh, but we will be letting you know the kind of who you've been assigned to as a shepherd. And again, this is not in an effort to uh, micromanage or to be unnecessarily in your business. This is a step of, of love. We, we love you. We care for you. We really take it seriously to know how we can pray for you and not just have this be, hey, you show up on Sunday, great. And that's, that's all it is. And so if, if this is your church home, that's a part of it. If you're new here, um, don't worry, you're not on a shepherding list yet. But if you stick around, um, you will be. And we hope you do stick around. So any questions, let me know. I'm really looking forward to having Dan and Steve join the team with us. So with that being said, Mark chapter 10. We're going to jump in today on Palm Sunday. It's a special day. Right? It's the day every year, one week before The resurrection story one week before Easter Sunday, Jesus enters the capital city of Jerusalem. And as we read earlier, the scripture that was read aloud, the people welcomed Jesus. Hosanna, they cried out. Save us. This Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for that's going to set all things right. And so on Palm Sunday, we remember first that Jesus is the king the king of the world, the king of the universe. And yet there's this great irony wrapped up in Palm Sunday because as Jesus comes, he doesn't come in the way that the people expected him to. He didn't come riding a war horse, a military, powerful victor. No, he came to to die, to lay down his life, which is what we remember on Good Friday, his death on the cross. And so there's this irony that the people say, Jesus, you're the king, we welcome you, and yet they don't fully understand the nature of his kingdom. And so as we look at Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 13. We see this chunk of scripture that is answering the question, how do we enter the kingdom of God? If Jesus is the king that we remember on Palm Sunday, and his kingdom is coming, then how do we be a part of that? How do we participate in this kingdom that he's bringing? Which is a very important question because we all have this deep fundamental need to belong, to connect, to be included. In fact, some of our most painful memories maybe come from times in our lives where we were excluded. We were on the outside looking in. We were rejected. 
Actually, they've done research lately and found that your brain processes rejection and exclusion in almost the same way that your body processes physical pain. Fascinating. So as far as your brain is concerned, being rejected or left out emotional pain is almost identical to physical pain. It's that difficult for us. It literally hurts us. And so if that's true on a human level, then how much more is it true with God that we don't want to be left out of God's kingdom? If there is a God and God's bringing his kingdom, don't we want to be a part of that? We don't want to be on the outside looking in. And so we're going to see in this passage two kind of back-to-back events that will tell us how to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 13, let's look at the first one. It says this, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. People, parents probably, bringing their kids to Jesus, which maybe would be a natural impulse, right? If you have little kids and there's this spiritual teacher, rabbi, special figure around, maybe if you get your kids close enough to Jesus, to this famous person, he'll be able to give them some kind of blessing, bestow on them some good gift for their lives. And so they're trying to get them close. And we don't know how old these kids are. The Greek word there isn't super specific, but it's little kids. It could be babies, could be infants, very young at the oldest, these little ones. If you were here several weeks ago, maybe you remember Pastor Lee's message on children and the value that they had in the ancient world. It was not much. Right? They were loved, but really socially they had no status, no social power or influence of any kind, not to mention they were physically powerless. They were weak, vulnerable, dependent on others for everything. I mean, the overall uh, posture when you looked at a child was not like, oh, how cute they are. It was more of seeing them as, as a burden, right, until they were able to contribute something to the family or contribute something to society as a whole. And so how strange is it then that Jesus looks at these, these weak, vulnerable, needy, dependent children and says the kingdom belongs to such as these. He doesn't say the kingdom belongs to the warriors, to the powerful, to the kings, to the politically influential. No, to children. We see the disciples respond. They don't quite understand, do they? They're rebuking the people that are bringing the children to Jesus. Rebuking them. I mean, we've seen the disciples miss it in a number of ways constantly throughout the book of Mark, right? But here, again, they really don't get it. In their minds, the king is here. Jesus is here. We've got an important agenda. We've got things we've got to do. Society, we got to influence. We don't have time for these kids coming up. Need to get, get them out of here. And they rebuke the people. What are you doing bringing Jesus? What can they contribute to our agenda? What can they do for us? Nothing. Get them out of here. It, it's almost comical how harsh they are with these kids, with these people bringing children. I mean, could you imagine coming to church next Sunday, coming as a family, you're bringing your kids beautiful sunny day, you walk 
down past our welcome table towards our kids' check-in area. You walk through the doors and you see Pastor Lee there. Some of our children's volunteers ready to check kids in. And they say to you as you're walking through the doors, No! No, 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 no. What are you doing? Bringing kids in here. Bringing kids in the church. Don't you, this is a church. Don't you know what we do here? We talk about important life and death serious issues. This is no place for a child. We got things to do. We got a society to influence. We got to see the kingdom of God come here. We got to change lives. You're bringing kids in here? We don't have time for that. Leave them at the door. Let them play out in the parking lot or the street, whatever. You, we don't care. Just leave them out there. We got important stuff to do in here. Did anyone get greeted like that by our kids team? Okay, good. I hope not. No, that would be crazy. And yet that's essentially the welcome that the disciples give to these families that are coming to Jesus. We see Jesus respond. He's furious. It says he's indignant. He's angry with his disciples saying, guys, you don't get it. You don't understand. Don't stop them from coming to me. Let the children come to me. Bring them here. Don't hinder them. And he goes even further in verse 15. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he took them in his arms and he blessed them. And he laid his hands on them. And so we see a couple things here. First, maybe most on the surface, is God's heart for kids. God's love for children. We see Jesus welcomes them. He wraps them up in his arms. Shows them that they are valuable and loved. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Again, how it's a challenge for us. This should be a a challenge for us as adults in the church to create a culture where kids are loved and cherished and protected and valued and seen the way God sees them. Sure, kids can be challenging, maybe distracting at times. In our, in our small group, we have three babies, about to be a fourth. We have four school-age kids that are running around. It's a joy and a bunch of adults. And so our small group, it can be a little challenging at times. You know, distractions come up, interruptions come up. I can say this because, again, our child is one of those children that re- requires things during the group that uh, can interrupt things that come up from week to week. But you know what? I would not change that for the world. It's a joy to be together as families. And to see these kids be welcomed and loved and a part of our group and get to know them. and It's a fabulous dynamic. I love it. It's worth it in every way. So the question again for us is, do we have a heart that says, man, kids are valuable. We love them. We're going to welcome them in every possible way. Because we see this in Jesus' embrace of them. But there's more here. He's going further than just, hey, love kids. He's saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to know how to be on the inside of what God is doing, the inner circle, a part of his kingdom, look to these kids. They have something to teach you. You have to receive the kingdom of God the way they do. Now, again, I have a child. She's 11 months old. She's almost a year. 
And this is a pretty humbling verse for me to think about. Because I think about what Zoe, my daughter, can do. And it's not a lot. Okay, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's, it's amazing watching her grow and develop and climb and process and play and do all kinds of different stuff. It's, it's, it's great, it's a miracle, it's beautiful. But if you, at the end of the day, if you think about it, if you were to put her like in a room on her own and just let her be, like what could she actually do? Not a lot. She could break stuff, hurt herself, cry, blow out her diaper. I mean, really, it, there's not a ton she would be able to do on her own without parents. She's dependent on us for everything. But Amber, the other week, even before I knew this text was coming up so soon, Amber and I were talking, and she says, hey, what do you think Zoe can do better than us? You know, like, what do you think we could learn from Zoe? What is she better at? And I was like, not much. But then Amber, being the wise, wonderful woman that she is, she said, you know what, I think Zoe's better at trusting than we are. She's better at being dependent, at receiving with open hands. And you know what? She's right. We do see this with children. I think that's the point Jesus is trying to get at, that only empty hands can receive the gifts of God. Only empty hands can receive the kingdom of God. We're going to say more about this in just a little bit, and we could stop here. I mean, this could be a whole sermon on its own, is, is, is these few verses, but I want us to see how it connects to the passage that comes right after it. I want to take them together, okay? And so let's keep moving on and see what comes up next. Very next verse, verse 17, says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. So this man's coming up to Jesus in the other gospels. We see a similar account, and we see that this man is likely a ruler of some kind. He's young. We read in a few verses that he's wealthy, seems to have it all together, and he comes to Jesus and shows him great respect, right? Comes on his knees before him, and he asks him this question, the same question we've been considering this morning. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? How do I enter the kingdom? How do I be a part of what God is doing both now and into eternity. And Jesus responds in a way that's caused a little bit of confusion. Maybe it's a little confusing for us today even. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, that's kind of an odd thing to say. Jesus, I mean, some have said, okay, is he denying that he's God? Saying, I'm not good, only God's good. No, it's probably not what he's doing here. In fact, some think that maybe he's subtly hinting at the fact that he is God. Saying, hey, you, only God is good. You're calling me good. What does that make me? Okay. But likely, I think it's even more subtle than that. I think he's just doing what a good Jewish rabbi would do. Sidestep the flattery and point the man back to God, to the goodness of God. Focus on the goodness of God, on God's word, on the commandments. 
which is exactly what he does. He says, well, you know the commands. Let's look at Scripture. What does it say? And he runs off this list of them. And the young man says, yeah, I've kept all of those. I've done all of them since I was a boy, which again brings us to an interpretive question. How do we think about his response? Is he being sincere? Is it true that he's kept all these commands? Is he lying? Because, I mean, who could really keep the commands perfectly? Is he boasting about his obedience? Has he really been an obedient man in all of these ways? I think we can take the statement at face value and take the man in his word and say, okay, maybe he has been obedient in these ways. Because if you look at the list of commands that Jesus lists, don't kill anybody, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. I mean, these aren't things that are necessarily outside of what would be expected for a good, educated, wealthy Jewish man in the first century. So it's not wildly unreasonable that he could have kept those commands. And we don't see Jesus rebuke the man. Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't kept those. Actually, you're a sinner, or no, how dare you be so proud to think you keep God's law? No, he doesn't, doesn't say that. He seems to say, yeah, okay. So let's take the man at his word, that he's, a, he's an obedient man to the law of God. He's an upstanding citizen. Later we learn he's wealthy. So he has all these outward signs of being on God's A-team, right? If anyone would be on God's A-team, it was probably this guy. But Jesus knows there's more going on in this man's heart than what's on the surface. He goes on, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I don't want us to miss how the verse starts here. I don't want to just skip over verse 21. Look at verse 21. He looked at him and what? He loved him. He loved him. And it's because he loves him that he challenges him, that he pushes him, that he calls him in a pretty powerful way. See, it would not have been loving if Jesus just looked at the man, patted him on the back, yeah, you are a pretty good guy. You are pretty obedient. You've done some good things. You can hang out with us. Come on in. No, he loves the man. And because he loves the man, he says, I'm going to point out something in your heart that you don't want to hear. I'm going to ask a lot from you. I'm going to shine light on a place that you might not want to be exposed. So he says, go. Go. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Get rid of your wealth, get rid of your possessions, sell all that you have. So you notice when Jesus lists some of the commands earlier, he's talking to the man, you know the commands. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. You notice he, he skipped over the first few of the first ten commandments. And what do the first few say? Have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Don't worship or love anything more than you love God. And so through this command, he's telling this man, sure, you've kept 
a good amount of the commands. You haven't stolen. You haven't killed anybody. You haven't cheated on your wife. But your heart has not worshipped God alone. So you failed to uphold the most important of the commandments. You love something more than God, he says. And so it's time. If you want to follow me, great. You have to give it up. Jesus isn't going to play second best in this man's life. So give it away. Find true treasure in me and then come follow me. There's this invitation. But the man can't handle it, can he? And he goes away sad. His face down. So what was his problem? This rich man who goes away sad and doesn't end up following Jesus. Doesn't end up entering the kingdom of God. Again, he loved something more than God himself. He valued his wealth, his possessions, his identity that those things brought, maybe his status because of his wealth, and he wasn't willing to lay it down. So maybe this man was outwardly obedient in a number of ways, but inside his heart was still worshiping something other than God. And it's always important for us to notice in a passage like this, you notice Jesus doesn't chase the man. You ever see in the New Testament Jesus running after people? Come back! You're right. Asking for everything was too much. Half. Give me half. Will you, will you give away half and come follow me? Would you, be, would you be willing to make that bargain? How about a third? A third? You come, you come follow me for a third? You sure? Not a third. Wait, wait. Come back. 10%. I'll make it 10%. Just keep the 90. Give the 10. We'll be good. No, Jesus doesn't chase him. Jesus doesn't negotiate. Jesus is like, look, here's what's required. Take it or leave it. Man leaves. Can't do it. So, of course, we have to ask then, what does this mean for us today here in 2018 in Benicia, California? Are you supposed to go and give away all of your wealth and all of your possessions like this man was called to? Maybe. Maybe. I think sometimes we're pretty quick to explain this passage away. Explain how this, this doesn't apply to us. This doesn't apply to every Christian pastor, just so you know. Of course, it doesn't mean every Christian to do this. Then you're right. We don't see every Christian commanded to give away all of their wealth and possessions to follow Jesus. This is a unique scene in Scripture we see here. But I think when we're quick to explain how this doesn't apply to us, it maybe shows that we might be the ones it in fact does apply to. One commentator put it this way, those who are most relieved to find out that they don't have to give away all their wealth might be the ones that actually need to. So yeah, not all Christians are called to give away all of their wealth and all of their possessions, but maybe some are. Maybe that's a idol in some of our hearts today. We value more than God himself. Now, the financial decisions you make are going to vary. They're going to be different 
and their nature and depending on timing and circumstances and what God would expect of you, no doubt. But we have to look and see how strong Jesus' words are here, how big of a warning and a flashing red light this is for those with wealth. As you see, he goes on, verse 23, Jesus looked around after this man went away sad and said, man, guys, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And you see that language again, entering the kingdom of God. He goes on, verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Famous words of Jesus. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is a figure of speech meaning what? It's impossible, practically impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I brought for demonstration a, a needle. It's true. Can you see it? Amber told me this is actually a, a bigger needle and the, the eye, I can barely see the eye from here. Can you, can you guys even see it? Yeah, it's hard to see. In first service, we brought a live camel on stage. It was wild. We tried it. It didn't quite work. They got the picture. I'm sorry you missed it, but the early bird gets the worm, I suppose. I'm just kidding. There was no cam camel, as you probably knew. But anyways, moving on. So you get the point. It's not going to happen. Camel, not going to go through the eye of a needle in the same way. It'd be easier for that to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard before that in saying this, Jesus was talking about some gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle that you had to crouch down and get through. There's really no historic basis for that until really medieval times. So that's probably not what Jesus was talking about. He was just using the imagery. The biggest known animal in the region at the time and the smallest opening to make a point. Not going to happen. Almost impossible. Man. And so at the very least, we have to be warned and say, wow, Jesus, affluence, wealth can be an incredible barrier to entering the kingdom of God. It's dangerous. Not because wealth is inherently evil or sinful, but because God knows the incredible, almost unmatched power that wealth has to blind us to our needs. So we can have luxury, we can have our pantry stocked, comforts, go shopping, do all the fun things we want to do, have status and influence with our wealth. It can blind us to eternal things, to our true need spiritually before the Lord. And so, of course, we want to justify ourselves, right? And so we want to think, man, well, who does this really apply to? Does this apply to me? I'm sure rich people, sure the ones living in San Francisco with multiple, you know, companies I own and private jets and property. I mean, that's probably who Jesus is talking about, right? But no, I think if we think about wealth on a global scale, especially throughout history, when God looks at the world, sees everybody, the amount of money that they have, I think people in the Bay Area in 2018 
probably are pretty close to the top in terms of wealth. I'm not saying everyone owns everything that they want to own, but when we think about globally, you know, this statistic from the president of World Vision, this is from a few years ago, but it's probably still pretty close to being accurate. It says, if your income is more than 25000 a year, more than 25000 a year, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. If you make more than 50000 a year, more than 50000 you're wealthier than 99% of the world. Again, we don't feel rich because we compare it to those that have more than us. When we think about it on a global scale, we are some of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. And, and I get that living expenses here are more than other places. I get there's all kinds of factors that goes into this. But when you just think about money, wealth going into our hands and being stewarded and sent elsewhere, whatever, we have more than virtually everyone in the history of the world. Okay, We're in the top couple percent at least. That should be pretty staggering and alarming for us when we come to passages where Jesus talks so firmly about wealth, about riches. And so I think it's important for us to see that the American lifestyle, it's not normal. We think it's normal, it's not normal. So what do we do with our wealth? How do we handle it? Now, of course, the principle that Jesus is unpacking here, it's bigger than wealth, right? It's, it's more than just money. Really, the, the bigger principle is, is there anything, anything in your life that's getting in the way of your relationship with God? Anything that you value more? Maybe for you it is money. You need to do some work with the Lord with that. Yeah, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a relationship, a career, some part of your identity that is more important to you than God himself. And so the question really for each of us is where might Jesus be saying to us, yeah, you're doing great in some ways, but one thing you lack. You love this more than me. What would be that thing that Jesus might point out to us? I want you to give away this. And it would cause us maybe to go away sad. I want to zoom out a little bit now. We've seen these two passages. Jesus and the children. Jesus and the rich man. They could be standalone messages and there's plenty to chew on just from them separately. But what do they tell us when we put them side by side? When we think about the question, how do you enter the kingdom of God? How do you be a part of what God is doing in the world? That language is running throughout this chapter. We see it in verse 15. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never <coughs> enter it. And then the rich man in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then we see the disciples in verse 26. They're amazed at what Jesus is saying. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? They're asking that question. Who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Who can inherit eternal life? Who can be a part of what God is doing both now and forever? And see, the disciples are amazed because in their minds, in the first century culture, they would think that a rich person was probably blessed by God. 
It was probably a, a blessing for obedience. It was a sign of uh, status. It was a sign of probably being on uh, God's A-team. They were doing pretty well. And so they're saying, man, if this rich guy, if he can't even get into the kingdom of God, then who in the world can? How can any of us have any hope then of entering the kingdom of God? And so let's compare the two passages. We see first there are children brought to Jesus. And how do they come? Empty-handed. Absolutely nothing to bring to the table. And how does Jesus respond? He blesses them. And then he says, you guys need to enter the kingdom like children. Learn from them. And then we see the rich man. How does he approach Jesus? I mean, his hands are full. He's obedient. He's wealthy. He has status. But how does Jesus respond to him? Or rather, how does he respond to Jesus? Goes away sad. Walks away without following Jesus. And Jesus says how hard it is to enter the kingdom if you're like this. So two very different types of people with very different responses and Jesus' ultimate different word that he speaks over their destiny. And so think about what do the children have that the rich man does not? That's the question we need to answer. What do these kids have that the rich man doesn't? Dependence, weakness, empty hands, vulnerability, right? They had nothing. And Jesus says, that's the only thing you need. Whereas this rich man has everything, but lacks the only thing he really needs. So Jesus looks at them and says, man, with man, this is impossible. Who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom of God? With man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So he's saying, if you try to enter the kingdom of God the human way, your own way, through your strength, your accomplishments, your merit, your status, and you bring that to God, it'll never work. It'll never work. I don't care how wealthy you are, he says. And see, the problem is we come to God with what? With full hands. Don't we have a tendency to do that? To think, man, i got to earn God's favor. And so, God, look at what I have. Look at what I've done. Look at the good things I've done. Check out my church scorecard. I raised my hands in worship once. That was with 50 bonus points right there. Come on. Look at it, Lord. Or if we're not maybe the religious type, we think, well, I'm a pretty good person, God. Look at the altruistic things I've done in the world, the humanitarian efforts, the, the causes I've supported. I'm a pretty good person. God, shouldn't you be pretty pleased? I'm better than most, right? He said, God, look. Come with full hands to him. And Jesus says what? He says, it's impossible to get in that way. It's never going to work. But with God, all things are possible. God can do what you can't do. God can save you when you can't save yourself. Only empty hands can receive the gospel. Right? Isn't that what Jesus is trying to show us? It takes us back to the heart of our faith, to the, the gospel. 
which is what? That we are dependent, broken, needy, sinful, separated from God, under God's righteous judgment for our sin, without hope of our own, worthy of death. And God does what? God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and God rescues. He does all the work. Jesus lives the sinless life we can never live. And he dies a death that he did not deserve so that if we would trust in him, our sins would be forgiven. We'd be healed and cleansed and restored to a right relationship with God. And then just as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, if we have put our faith in him, we too can be made alive again, given his spirit, adopted as his children, welcomed in his home to walk with him both now and forever. Isn't that the heart of the gospel, that God has done it all? And that we all come as children, empty-handed, needy, broken, weary, bringing nothing to the table. We've earned none of it. But God blesses us with life and grace and everything else. We would come like children with empty hands. So the question for us is, are your hands empty or full as you approach God? Are your hands empty or full? And here's the thing, we, even if we've been in the church for a long time, we need to be reminded of this because sometimes we start here, God, save me. God, respond to the gospel. Thank you. But sometimes we can kind of drift and start to say, man, over, over the years, I've done some pretty good stuff. I've been a Christian for a while. I've, my life's cleaned up. It looks a lot different than it used to be. Don't do those things anymore. I do these things now. Look at how much I give. Look at how much I serve. And you feel kind of pretty good about yourself. And, and a lot of those changes, I'm sure, are good and honoring to God in all kinds of ways. And he's at work in your life, no doubt. But if that becomes the basis for our relationship with God, if we expect to stand before the throne one day with, with that in our hands and say, look, God, to say, you, you missed it. You missed, you missed the point. We never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from a posture of empty hands like children needy before the Lord. Every single one of us. And maybe you're here today and maybe life's got you down. Maybe you're here, you're weary, you're hurting, and you say, yeah, my hands feel pretty empty, Pastor. Thank you very much. I'm already there. Don't need to be reminded of that. If that's you, then just know that that's all you need. <laughs> That's the only requirement for knowing the Lord, that he, he meets you there. He loves you. wants to restore your life. wants to be a part of your life. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to know him and serve him, and he wants you to live life as his child. That's good news for the weary. And again, we just think about this in terms of the human family. If you've had a child or if you've been a child, great, we've all been there. Think about when you're born into a family or when your child is born into your family, what did, again, what did they do to deserve it? What did they do to earn their place in your family? I mean, the only reason that they're there is because of you. They wouldn't be alive if it weren't for you. You're the very reason they've come in to life and to, to live on earth. They wouldn't be alive if it weren't for you. And then once they get here, again, they're dependent for everything. You feed them. You clean them. <coughs> you protect them. And yet, 
you love that little thing more than practically anything else. This is my son. This is my daughter. They bear my name. They belong to me. They're a scrayback. Or put your last name there, obviously. Right? They belong to me. They're my child, and they know that they belong to you. They're part of your household. They're loved by you. They're cherished by you, protected by you. And so in the same way, but that much greater is the truth with God, that we come into his family. He says, you're my son, my daughter. I love you. You have my name on you. What a great, glorious truth of the gospel that God does for us. And the closing verses, my friends, remind us that it's all worth it. Really briefly, I mean, Peter speaks up after all this. He says, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. It's, it's largely true. And he says, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are the first will be last, and the last will be first. There's this great reversal. Somehow the children get it, where the rich and powerful don't. He says, anyone who, who gives up much to follow me, they receive so much more. New family members, being a part of the body of Christ, new resources, belonging to something so much bigger than themselves. And yes, persecutions come, but after it all, there's eternal life, knowing the Lord forever and ever with his people and a part of his family. So again, as we approach the Lord, are our hands empty or full? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for, for teaching us and for reminding us that we come to you only one way, like children, with empty hands, needy, dependent in every way for you to save and rescue and heal and restore us. God, you do it all. And so we come to you today, even those of us who have been Christians for many years, those of us who are older, God, we still say, Lord, it's all you. It's all because of what you've done. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.